I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And greetings once again. This is the Purple Patch Podcast, and as ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And today, well, we've got a special guest. We've got a titan of British Sports Performance. It is Steve Ingham, and Steve was the Science Director of the English Institute of Sport. He was the Science Manager of the British Olympic Association. So what does that mean? Well, Steve basically oversaw the progression of British athletics, British cycling, and many other British sports in their Olympic success over the last years. Under Steve, we have 200 athletes that have achieved world or Olympic medal success. We have the best British medal hall ever in a single Olympics and the only country to ever go from hosting the Games and improving on their medal count in the subsequent Games in Rio in 2016. Some of the athletes he's worked with, Jessica Ennis-Hill, Sir Steve Redgrave, Sir Matthew Pinsent and many, many more. As you'll find out, Steve is an incredibly interesting guy. It's not just about sports performance, it's about life work and sports performance at the very highest level. We have a wonderful conversation and in fact we go on for quite a long time and so today we're not going to do the jingle, we're not going to do word of the week, we're going to dive right into the meat and potatoes with my conversation with Steve. We'll come back to word of the week next week, we will carry on with the questions from you guys in subsequent weeks and so enjoy the conversation I hope you find it fascinating. You don't have to be a fan of athletics or a triathlete or a serious cyclist to get something out of this conversation. It's deep. It's meaningful. It's a real coaching conversation. Enjoy. Take care. Here is Dr. Steve Ingham. All right, guys. So the meat and potatoes this week and... Well, we have a, I won't actually say not just a special guest, Steve, we have a very special guest today. <laughs> Steady on. You are performance royalty, my friend. So, um, so today we have joining us Dr. Steve Ingham. And Steve, uh, just to give you guys listening, especially you Yankee poodles that are listening, you might not have heard of Steve, but after this you'll understand why you should have done. So Steve was the science director at the English Institute of Sport was a science manager of the British Olympic Association. And Steve, the, the athletes that you have worked directly with, uh, over a 1,000 athletes of the calibre, but over 200 of which have achieved world or Olympic medal success. Some of the names that we can talk about, Jessica Ennis-Hill, Sir Steve Redgrave, who won Olympic gold in rowing in 84, 88, 92, 96, and 2000. Hmm. Not too many people have won Olympic golds in, uh, in five Olympic Games. Uh, so Matthew Pinson, the list goes on. And now uh, you're also the author of How to Support a Champion. I have that downstairs on the, by the side of my bed. I'm just cracking into that, actually. And now your company, Supporting Champions, really sort of transferring the lessons of your world of high performance into the wider world. It's, it sounds very purple patch of you. <laughs> but um, And uh, really a, a fantastic new company with uh, focused on personal and team-based performance development. Uh, and so, Steve, thank you so much for spending a little time with us today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Matt. So we're going to go through, and I don't think either of us can imagine 
where we're going to go with this conversation. I'm sure it's going to meander off of a rough framework that we have. But before we get in, I like to do this with, with every guest that we have. I think that context is really valuable. So you're English like me, but I'd love to, to just know a little bit about your, your background growing up, your family, where you grew up, uh, where you studied, etc. Hmm. Uh, well, oh God, I was... I was actually born in a place called Luton, which oh, anyone dear. who knows... Did you say, oh dear? Well, I was born in Southend in Essex. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, Fair a, enough, it's yeah. a camaraderie there yeah. of, of hardship. Um, I, I only I was only there for a few years before my, my parents said, that's enough. And, and they moved us to the south coast, a little town called Bournemouth. Oh, yeah. So a wonderful, wonderful place to, to live by the sea and, and so on. Um, fairly standard upbringing, um, slightly coloured by what what I'd probably say is a fairly fundamentally bad decision by my parents to send me to a a particular school, not the local secondary school, but the one that's a little bit further out of, uh, further afield. They chose to do that because they had a farm, which, which they thought was a really lovely idea. Um, they, what they didn't spot was one of the largest, council estates in Europe uh, next door to it. And so uh, one of the most socially deprived areas uh, of Bournemouth and Poole was, yeah. meant that it was a very rough school. Yep. Um, so for, for quite a few years, I was actually reasonably regretful that my parents did that. Um, bad education. I had to resit an awful lot. But at the same time, um, I look back now and I see it as such a hotbed of learning experience of of working with people or or reading people and understanding them. Yeah. Uh, so that was the, that was kind of the foundation. I, I messed up at school quite quite badly. I mean, I wasn't interested. I, so there was a fairly bad crowd of people that I was mingling with day to day. And and in that environment, were you? Did, when did you did you get into sports and what, how did sports relate to that? You're in a rough school. Were you doing school sports or anything like that? Uh, so I was a sprinter, 100 meter sprinter. Okay. Uh, I was fairly quick. I was quick uh, at junior and senior uh, school. So um, I always loved sports. So I would I would participate in it. I would train for it. I was a member of a running club. Um, so I, I'd find myself also watching. The Olympics, the the World Championships, looking up to people like Carl Lewis and Linford Christie and the, the sprinting greats at the time. Of course, um, and and so sport was very much part of part of my interest and my life. And, and then probably when I was really scratching my head and thinking, what am I going to do with my life? Uh, failed at school and thinking about where next. Uh, the other interest that I had was was around biology and psychology. So interested in it about the body, how it yep. works. And so I'd find myself drawn to and reading these, these, uh, these textbooks around biology quite just spontaneously, really, mm-hmm. um, and sport. And then started to realize, well, this might be something I could fuse and start to work on. And the strong dominant voice at the time was don't bother looking at sports science because there's no industry, there's no career there. Go and do physiotherapy or something like that where there's a, you can go and work in the health service. Um, but just, I thought, you know, I, I can't muster the energy to study something I don't want to study. And yep. so uh, I met, I met a teacher 
so I was I retook my GCSEs and and I was taught biology by a man called Colin Clegg, who was a real mentor, and showed me and inspired me to learn. And uh, I was the first person that really thought, oh, I want to be like that. I want to know stuff. I want to help yeah. people with knowledge. And uh, and so that led me to study sports science. Okay, and you moved on to uh, to sports science. And where where did you end up studying sports science? I studied at University of Brighton. Okay, which um, a slight digression, but it was it. I, I, there was a purple patch for sure at Brighton at the time. So my tutors there were Peter Keane, who was the god of yeah. British cycling. Goodness me, he was my personal tutor. And he was coaching Chris Boardman at the time. And it was just ridiculous. Uh, people like Joe Doust and Steve Ball, real greats of sports science, that not only knew it academically, uh, had, had been on the front line with athletes, but they com- could communicate it with clarity and passion. And they, they beat, for me, the Loughboroughs and the Birminghams, the, the true greats of, of sports science, because I just wanted to listen to these people. Yeah. So I studied there, did my undergraduate um, I graduated in 96 and that was the coincident low point of British sport, I, I would say, where the British team came back from the Atlanta Olympics with one gold medal. Mm-hmm. So it was the low point and from which that point the government invested and started to invest. And I was lucky enough to then uh, to, to get one of the, I was, I was actually one of the first sports scientists in the country full time. So there's only 10 of us in the UK in 1996 goodness me it's, it's only just over 10 years ago you know like 12 years ago yeah so that's right uh, oh, 20 years ago i guess uh, i should say but yeah. um yeah it's uh, it's incredible and and so you've you've since gone on and we could say that the sort of rest is history in a way but you mentioned there the greats and uh, and so sort of some of these amazing mentors and we'll probably get into mentors and leaders later on but um but one of the things you talked about was was almost applied physiology so this sort of theoretical side of the study of sports science and then there's the front lines and you've worked with over 200 medalists at the world level olympic games across multiple sports being the uh being the director and so I'd love, as, as myself, my background is, I know I'm, I'm spending a long time to answer this, ask this question, but my background is exercise physiology, but I studied exercise physiology in the late 90s. So now I sort of would never refer to myself as a physiologist. I'm a coach, you mm. know, because that's what I've really done for the last 20 years is basically coach, coach athletes, and then draw from a backbone of science. So I'd be interested, from your standpoint, coming out of the wheeze, what do you see as the, the role in an aspirational sense of sports science within sport? Mm. Well, I think there's, a, there's certainly a dichotomy that's emerged in the science of sport. So whether you put the science in sport or whether you put the sport in science. And mm-hmm. I, I think a lot, a lot of academics and educational organisations, they were just trying to put sport into science. And... And actually, we're bred as scientists first and foremost, but that's not really the the major professional vocational outlet. Now, it certainly isn't now. Yep. And so I, 
my, my background is an applied sports scientist primarily because I started thinking I need to learn a lot of this stuff. And so I might as well apply it to me and then I might as well apply it to other people so that it can stick in my brain a bit more. Mm-hmm. And then I started realizing, okay, well, I can unlock performance for other people. And that's very much what applied sports science is about, is finding ways in which you can, can apply knowledge, objective thinking, uh, creativity and innovation so that you can enhance performance for people. And as opposed to thinking what was probably in the early 90s was, oh, we've got these curious humans with amazing capabilities. They must have interesting heart structure or lung structure. Let's probe and poke them and measure them and then write it up, which is of no real use to that recipient, that client. It's not actually actionable. No, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and so I was, when I worked, started work at the Olympic Association, there was a lot of hangover of this. And we would do, we would do things like VO2 max testing on shot putters because it was the traditional way of observing every capability that we could measure on everybody, as opposed to this is the most important measure of your physical capability. And we are going to, we're going to help you because we understand this really deeply. Um, it was it was to do to a, to an athlete as opposed to for their benefit, uh, and that's the the evolution of applied sports science over the last couple of decades is is going from this research focus to to this applied performance focus. And you, you told me a story uh, earlier on around uh, Sir Steve Redgrave and. Uh, and first meeting him, which was in 98, would that have been? Right. In 1998. So he is already a four-time Olympic gold medalist. And I think he had, he, so he'd lived through that generation of prodding and research without it actually being actionable for him, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, so just recount that, that story a little bit of when you came, because I think you were 24 years of age, and suddenly you're, you're staring mm. in the face of this rowing legend. <laughs> and uh, how was that meeting him? And how, how, And I guess how did you convert to actually make something actionable for him well so the background to this was in 96 i got a job at a regional level sports center and i I had the assignment of working with the worcester rowing team and they did quite well and that actually got me the job with the british team I, i had nothing to do with their performance improving but that got me the job with the british rowing team and so they were the only olympic gold medalists at the time steve redgrave and matthew pinson and so steve had finished across the line in 96 and he'd it said, that's, that's me done. If anyone sees me go near a boat, you have my permission to shoot me. Uh, so I already knew as, as a fan that this guy was an intense character and watched all the documentaries. Um, but then he made the decision to come back and he would compete at the Sydney Games at 38. Yep. And so there was a specific challenge there, a very interesting challenge for him. So yeah, I got the job in middle of 98 and, uh, and I went down to, to see them. I'm, I'd, I'd met a few of them beforehand, but I hadn't met Steve Redgrave. He was the main man. He was the linchpin. And he sets the mood. If he was not in a good mood, everyone knew about it. And if he, if he cheered and, and laughed, everyone laughed. <laughs> uh, such, such an iconic, uh, almost um, totemic level of, uh, of personality. Yep. So I, I, I went down to Henley-on-Thames. Um, I spotted an opening. Uh, I was pacing around a lot in the car park beforehand, wondering what I was going to say. 
And uh, I, I bowled over to him. I said, look, hi, I'm Steve. I'm your new physiologist. And so I'm, I'm not particularly tall. This guy is six foot four and mostly about 16 stone worth of deltoid. And he just stared down at me and just said, are you going to make me go faster? And I was just thinking, oh, come on, mate. You know, we've got the same first name. We could have chatted about that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was hoping he'd say, look, come and have a look at my medals. Look, come and have a look at my boat. Let's have a chat. What do you know? And, but so I was genuinely frightened <laughs> at the time and intimidated. But I'd done my homework and I'd realized that there was a, there was a, a number of sports scientists that had just, that just got bounced from the system. They turned up, told him what to do. And I just could not imagine myself doing that. And so I, I said to him at the time, look, I, I don't know that I can help you go faster, but I'd love to know why you keep winning. And if I can do that, then I'll share that with you. And if there's some little area that, that I think might spot an opportunity for you, then I'll share that with you too. And he just sort of grunted and grabbed his oar and off he went. I, I got away with it, I think. That yeah. was the, th- the signal of, okay, this might be slightly different. Reframing the conversation, basically. A yeah. value proposition in many ways. Yeah, very much so. Is that, that I, I'm going to commit to you. I'm going to journey with you. I'm going to make this easier for you. I'm certainly not going to weigh you down as you climb up the mountain. And that was my philosophy going into it. And uh, it, he he didn't warm to me straight away. It took time. It took several offers of cups of tea at training camps and uh, trying to chat to the guy and, and find ways of developing that rapport. And and slowly but surely he could become, he could trust me. That was the first, the cornerstone and really taught me that every relationship, every person you're going to work with, uh, whether it's a business administrator, whether it's your boss, or whether it's uh, a coach, or whether it's an athlete, everyone, anyone you ever connect with, it's a foundation of trust first and foremost. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and and so Steve actually found himself in a difficult situation where he's getting older. Some of his figures are starting to go down. Uh, he he had diabetes which in itself is an interesting physiological challenge for, a, for someone who burns 6,000 calories a day. Um, and he also had competition. Mm-hmm. For the first time, the system started to get funded and started to inject money in, and so youngsters could start to train full-time. And he found that he had threat, a threat to, his, to, to the boat. The threat of youth, basically, yeah. Yeah, and, and the, the new hungry youngsters on the scene started to think differently, a little bit more creative, a little more, bit more progressive, and so they started to threaten his place in the boat, and which meant that he had to step up as well. Um, and then he started to to open up. It's interesting. Uh, one of the things that we see because the, the sport that I coach, the the age of the professional triathletes tends to be a little bit older. So, and, and there are some younger, very very success, sort of successful professional triathletes now. But as you move more towards Ironman and half Ironman. They're hitting their prime in their mid-30s, 36, 37, 38, and going on. But one of the things that we notice a lot is for someone that has been in sport a long time, forget chronological age, just think about sporting age, the necessity to evolve approach sometimes Mm. because of the encroachment of age or years in the sport. And, uh, you know, there couldn't be a bigger example of someone, both of the, the threat of youth, but also 
probably needing to have a slightly evolved mindset on approach practically of what is effective training for you now relative to when you were 25 and recovery was much quicker etc did you see elements of that in him yeah i think it's actually one of the most interesting concepts of of working with somebody throughout their career and and so the the ultimately you are you're working with athletes and uh, and coaches and to a certain level and the plates shift constantly and so for example what's going to work for you when you're 18 it's not going to be working for you when you're 28 or 38 um not least the fact that that throughout the training year you become a different physical and mental specimen and it combines and it will evolve and phase through your career one of the interesting concepts that i've we've we've certainly learned from over the years is that is that when you become olympic champion uh you crystallize that routine that got you there yeah and that's that's the that's the plan that's what they will then attach faith to but that's not necessarily what's going to get to to the top of the olympic podium again in four years time uh so for example with jessica ennis hill Four years later, after 2012, she's she's become a mum. Uh, she's she's got to change her training program, but she's wedded mentally to the program that got her to the to the top in because 2012. This defines success. It's the validation, of, absolutely of everything of the life commitment sort of thing. Yeah, and it's interesting for a coach who's been to the top as well. So those Olympic gold medal winning coaches who have a crystallized routine, but then try and apply it to to other performers, but it doesn't work necessarily. It lacks the individualization or the sensitive a touch. You almost need like sometimes a bronze medal <laughs> coach yeah, sure. who's, who's still not quite satiated with the, with the formulaic uh, approach. So that is an interesting one. And, what, and so the learning from that is that, is that whenever you're working with talent at an early age is that you get them ingrained into debriefing, reflecting, and staying open-minded. Uh, and so I currently work with a world junior heptathlete, uh, Neve Emerson. She's just won the, uh, the world juniors debrief, mm-hmm. get reflecting. What could you do differently? Because that's a habit you need to ingrain in the same way that you might do recovery processes or hydration methods. Uh, and that, that will, that will last, that will stand you in good stead when you're at your peak, but you're trying to sustain that peak. And that's a sustained performance is always the challenge. It's interesting. We, we have, a, I have lots of silly little sayings. One of the, which I love is evolve or die. And so there, there is always this necessity for growth. One of the things we do is the, the post-mortem of a season always. And, uh, and typically it's, uh, myself, Paul, who I mentioned before, who's my, my sort of primary assistant coach. And then anyone else that might be involved in the process. And what we really try and do as, a, as an organization, both at the elite level and then globally across our athletes, is to really dissect what was really good and what are the pieces that we can draw from and where can there be improvements. And one of the things that really surprises people is some of the biggest changes we've made in overall sort of mindset of programming have been after our most successful years. And that's a paradox for people to understand. And, you know, the year that uh, we had uh, one of our professional athletes win the world championship was probably the biggest year in evolution that I've ever done, not in the heartbeat of beliefs, but how you apply those beliefs at the sort of macro level as an organization and some of the habits. So I think it's, I think one of the, 
the limiters of some coaches or or, or, or sort of organizational mindset professionals is um, is as soon as you they, they think they've got it cracked mm. because of initial success and the only way to continue to have success is to actually continue to be your own assassin of truth in many ways mm. so yeah it's it's interesting that you should say that coming coming back to sports science I, I don't want to leave the subject uh, as, as I thought would happen we were going multiple tangents today but uh, coming back to sports science I want to explore the relationship between sports science and coaching and uh, in in your career and development have you experienced you must have seen sort of experienced great relations of the the sort of hands-on coaching and and sports science and also friction do you experience sort of the good or the bad? I guess what are the sort of some of the traits or the sides, the ingredients that you notice with great coaches or leaders that embrace that side of it, or vice versa? Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I've been privileged enough to work with some outstanding leaders, Tony Minicello, Martin McElroy, to name a few that 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 genuinely inspire you and uplift you and think think big, stretch your horizons, but also give you ambition and hope. Mm-hmm. Um, the best relationships that, that I've worked in within teams have been led by someone who who is a good manager, is a good people person, but has gives you clarity of purpose, uh, encourages you to take risk and explore, uh, but also knows where you stand. Um, so I think the evolution of coaches, of certainly in in professional sport and Olympic sport now, is, is has gone from this transactional. I'm working with one athlete. Uh, it's just you and me. We're in it together. It's us against the world. And and they have to make sure that they have a bond and a relationship. Yeah. It's shifted from that now into this host of support services that, that can add value. And the risk of that for the coach is that it becomes extremely noisy and various different inputs that, that have conflicting views or that that means that the coach lacks for understanding of the priority. Mm -hmm. And so the coach then has to become this leader, has to become uh, very much the, what we would recognize in business as the leader that people report to and that they are the orchestrator of the system. And And the filter of the information in many ways. Yeah. Yes, very much the filter. So, so I drifted, I, I, I never really ever saw myself as a coach, but I drifted into coaching a heptathlete called Kelly Southerton, who was Olympic bronze medalist in, in Athens, but she asked me to, to coach her running towards the Beijing Olympics in 2008. And I think before that, I was always very sensitive to the needs of the coach. But actually looking back, I was, I was this sort of uh, just excited puppy dog, just suggesting idea after idea. And the best coaches that I worked with at that time said, would, would direct my energy, give me yeah. the big idea, give me the one that's really going to be impactful or that's uh, low risk level, but it's going to give us high return. They would direct my energy. Whereas when I was coaching, I was uh, suddenly taking on this mantle of that I'm going to be in the Olympic Stadium, the bird's nest in Beijing, and I'm going to be accountable for that athlete's results. And what came with that was a completely different lens of focus. And... And I think I came away from the Beijing Olympics with my my whole world changed of thinking how we actually support coaches in a completely different way. And 
get prior to prioritizing our messages to them um, and keeping things very clean and focused. Because um, I would get all these inputs from people and I didn't want them. It becomes noise, yeah? Yeah, lots of noise. Confusion and noise. And when yeah. you're trying to actually come up and make sort of decisions that with real intentional focus. Yeah. And so uh, I remember I remember one example someone proposing that uh, that we use a ketone drink for an athlete uh, in the lead up to to a major competition. And uh, and I had considered this. I'd filtered it out. I thought this is not not appropriate. But then the then somebody's barraging the athlete with this idea. And then they come to me and say, why aren't you, why aren't you putting this idea on the table? You know, this is, this is the cutting edge and it's not going to do any harm. And they, and actually what it makes me feel is that, that I've let that athlete down. Whereas actually this has been filtered away and deprioritized because we are trying to give them focus. Um, so, and it made me look, you know, like a chump really. Mm-hmm. And so actually what you need to do is sometimes it's not about lots of ideas. It's about the best foot forward. Um, that's, that's the difference for, for coaches these days that have, and certainly in the professional setups that I see in football, or as you'd say, is over here in, in soccer and rugby and, and so on. They haven't got people that really filter well for the head coach, uh, when they're under enormous media scrutiny to perform. Um, they need, they need filters. It's really interesting. You know, uh, an athlete that I coached. Tim Reed, who is a, an exceptional athlete and a, and a wonderful human being, actually, he, uh, he had continued to progress, but his personality himself was actually sort of a, in, in the family, in the, in the sort of amongst uh, professional traffic, he's known as a tinkerer, you know, so he, he, it's the addition of all the extra stuff, latex tubes in riding, new special potions and solutions, whatever it might be, and... Uh, he sort of had a, a general progression then had a little bit of a plateau and at the start of 2016 I realized that my job in coaching him it wasn't about the magic workouts it wasn't about the intervals it was to create clarity a focus and a little bit of freedom from that stuff so we actually came up with a mantra that we now use across our sort of population of nail the basics everything you want to do is simple and repeatable until you can actually master the most critical basic elements in training, recovery, uh, nutrition, whatever it might be, you don't get to think about anything else. We don't introduce anything else. And of course, that was the year that he raced with freedom. He actually started to really enjoy the process because he had less confusion or distraction and he went on to become world champion. And then, of course, everyone says, well, what did you do? What was different? Mm-hmm. It was like, actually, it's what we didn't do. It's what we didn't introduce and where we could allow him to not have noise in his head as much as possible. Yeah, it's an interesting concept in the sense that um, when somebody's proposing a ketone drink uh, or an athlete saying, well, why aren't we doing this? And to come back to them to say, yeah, you don't get to do that because you, you're still on your PlayStation at, at 12 o'clock at night and you're not sleeping pro- properly and that's going to give you much, much more performance gain. So actually sorting and reframing the priority for people that's one way of doing it but equally sometimes some of these little innovations can certainly be really powerful hooks from which you can build and this is this has been something i've learned and evolved over time is that sometimes the the idea that you want to press forward and probably is the the biggest priority but it might not be the right time 
it might not land on fertile ground. There might be a reason that the coach or the athlete doesn't necessarily connect with that idea at that that moment in time, despite you coming up with the best argument or the best rationale for it. But actually sometimes coming in with something that could be a little bit funky, a little bit more of a gizmo, a little bit of an idea, that that's fertile ground. It's a win-win. Everyone agrees on it. And, and actually, you can build quite a lot on that. Around it. Yeah. And so you might think, right, okay, there's a special supplement. Oh, but if you want that supplement to go well, you need to really warm up well. But if you need to warm up well, oh, you need to make sure that you've got the right, uh, the right uh, training program before that, or the right taper. So you can build a lot of that around it. And that's a technique that I, I've come to realize is just as effective um, as just pressing on the, the, the big basics. Well, just, you know, the final sort of point on that is the other day I was chatting to an author who's written a very good book and she talked about what the research showed on timing of caloric replenishment. And she said, oh, actually, it doesn't really matter. And I said, well, there's an important point that firstly, the research evolves, but it's not just about what's happening at the the muscle physiology level with you what you're looking to do is to get athletes to adhere to a, a basic series of habits and so sometimes you place high value and importance on something to get them to do other stuff mm. and to to ensure and, and particularly in in my world one of the challenges for our professional athletes that are training a lot is to actually consume enough calories to support the workload. Mm -hmm. And so by integrating habits of post-workout fueling is absolutely critical is one piece of the puzzle of, yeah, it it is for a host of series of reasons, but it's also to make sure that you're putting your best foot forward on getting enough caloric support because it's, it's challenging. It's stressful to actually do something like that. So there's, there's another piece to it of like, it's, from a, a sports science standpoint, you may or may not agree with this, but sometimes it's about just getting the athlete to adhere to the things, the basic habits as much as anything. Yeah, very much so. I, I mean, I can think of a couple of key examples where actually I'd want the athlete to be doing that throughout the year, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's a sustainable thing. So breathing training is a good example. Sitting there with a, uh, an inspiratory muscle training device uh, to alleviate the stress or, the, or improve the fitness of the breathing muscles, you try and get an athlete to do that for more than six weeks at a time, and it will get put in the in the draw. Sure. And so, so that's reframing it to say, right, I need you to do this for six weeks. I want you to do this for six weeks, and then I won't bother you with it for the rest of the time. And I think if we step back from this whole area, it's we could make athlete lives so busy with the latest thing and the, the, and you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do the next. And they're so busy doing all of the additional work that it's mentally tiring and it's stressful for themselves that they feel like, Oh, I haven't taken my fish oils today. Therefore I'm going to, my whole training program is going to collapse because someone told me it was important. And so that's where you do have to make sure that it's it's phased or that it's potentially highly prioritized to say this this is the, this is where I really want you to focus nail these as you as you say um, because otherwise you're burdening unnecessarily for an athlete and they don't need that yeah no it's it's absolutely true Let, let's transition to mindset and elite performance something that that you're obviously passionate and experienced in and I, I want to begin with a word talent. 
this word talent. So that I think that there's a um, a common misconception in the world at many levels that the most successful athletes are just sort of in parentheses gifted. And so it's almost things come easy to them. In fact, one of the questions I often hear if one of my professional athletes has been interviewed is, does it hurt? <laughs> mm. like, you cannot imagine how much it hurts. But I'd love to know your view on that word talent. What does that mean? Well, I think this is probably a special category for extraordinary talent when you meet it and you think, okay, well, there's, I'm, I'm in the presence of greatness. And there are a couple of people that I would put in that bracket. And people like Steve Redgrave, people like Jessica Ennis, Chris Hoy, people like Usain Bolt, mm-hmm. Elliot Kipchoge. Yep. You know that they're in the room before you see them. And there's something about them that is special, that is intangible, and actually gets the goosebumps going. Sure. Um, so there is, there are some people who have a presence about them that that embody everything about excellence and aspiring for something outside of their reach. Um, so they're in a certain category, but I think it's a de- de- it depends on what you mean by talent. And I, I, I mention Usain Bolt because I think a lot of people think about him as a as an extreme specimen of the human race that's run faster than no one as ever on record. And so that's, that's, you, you see a success, but what you don't see is the injuries behind the scenes that he's managing on a day-to-day basis that come with his limb length, for example. Mm-hmm. So people think he's quick, but what gives him that speed is the unique combination of limb length and muscle fiber type um, and his ability to relax in a unique way. I've worked with athletes that have that, but just the wrong side of the equation. So I wrote about in my book uh, an athlete called Laura Finucan, who, when I met her for the first time, would have been around 2004, I thought this is the most gifted, talent, talented athlete I've ever worked with. She had everything. She, When she started to open up her stride, um, she just left everyone for dead. It was so inspiring to see. She had that grit. She had slight, a screw quite a little bit loose. It yep, was enough to, just way. to throw herself into a session. Um but we couldn't keep her injury free. And so you could say on one side that she's extremely talented, but on the wrong level. <laughs> yep. um, and what we've seen over the years in the British system is, is breaking the mold of thinking there's a formulaic level that you need to be at, whether it's certain lung capacity or limb length or body fiber type that, that you need to win. That's perhaps the jewel in the crown of applied sports science of being able to consider an athlete for the potential that they might have and think curiously about how could we get this person to the level that they need to be, irrespective of what they're coming in at. And and so that's that's where talent as a preconceived idea of what it takes gets blown out of the water. Yep. Of thinking that's where you're currently at, and this is where you would need to get to in certain characteristics. And that gap is where real performance needs to happen. Uh, and so it's as much about how you can adapt each of those elements and the unique, innovative ways that you can move the needle on certain components of performance that's part of the recipe. And with that, you have... So let's think about that gap. Someone entering any sport, sport independent, someone entering the innovation and support that comes with them 
Now let's talk about the human being. So the people that have managed to, beyond the physical characteristics, the people that have managed to get to the level and sustain that level, the emotional and, uh, 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 and psychological traits, what they bring to it from a, from a mindset standpoint. What are some of the common traits that you see in the, the highest performing athletes? Okay, so I've got two-part answer for you on this one. And, and um, I, I caveat this because the first part of this is that what, it, what it, we have observed in the super elites. Yeah. And that the super elite would be defined as people that have gone to major competitions and they keep winning. As opposed to <laughs> what's actually really quite good, we'd call the elites, uh, that have gone to a major competition and won a medal but they haven't repeated it serially. So there is some good research that separates out the super elite from the, from the elites. And so, and, and I've, I've delved into this and I've, I've drawn five components out that I, and I've, I've pulled this neatly into an acronym so that I can remember it and it go, it, it strive. So the, the best set their sights high. They have a, a unique focus on the goal. Uh, and there's two components to that, so that they will see the top of the mountain. I want to win that. Mm-hmm. But they're equally understanding that in order to do that, I need to do this today. So they have this distal goal, top of the mountain, but the proximal goal, which is today I need to do this in order to achieve that. They get the stepping stone of that. Basically. Yeah. Yep. And, and having both is essential. The T of strive is tenacity, so that people can see that they might need to shift they might need to break the mold. They might, and, and the interesting evidence around this is that is that super elites shifted sports at least three times. So they were competitive in one sport. Uh, for example, Steve Redgrave was a good runner. Uh, okay. He was a bobslayer. Uh, and then he found rowing. And so there's a tenacity aspect to this of thinking, yeah, I, can, I want to win, but I need to find the, the thing that I'm best winning at. The R is resilience. Uh, so the, in the, the capability to bounce back and see failure as an opportunity to learn, as opposed to just thinking, oh, I'm a failure. <laughs> I've, I've lost. Yep. I, that, that's dragging me downwards. That resilience, that ability to, to, to bounce back. The I is industry. Because there's no shortcut. There's no super pill that, that will get you. Well, that, oh, maybe but there's some, there, there are some super pills, but the industry aspect of it, everyone has to work hard if they want to achieve something remarkable. And that applies to sport and into, into life. It's going to, it's going to be hard work over a long period as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the, the V is value add so that they have a discerning quality that they're able to, to move things aside that are a distraction and see things that are going to va- add value to their life and, and move them forward. And the last one that is E, which is equipped. Because you you have to acclimatize your your experience and your confidence to each of the levels. No one stands there at the start line of an Olympic final and thinks, oh, how did I get here? The best indication that you can become Olympic champion is that you were world champion. And so you have to acclimatize to becoming world champion. The best indication of becoming world champion is it might be European champion or, or Pan American champion, champion or whatever. Exactly. Be, yeah. But you must acknowledge those, those experiences. 
And so the, the, those, that's, the, that's the acronym, STRIVE, setting your sights high, tenacity, resilience, industry, value-add, and equipped. But that, I caveat this because this is slightly out of date. I think that uh, increasingly we are seeing performers learn these capabilities as opposed to they are something that they are gifted with, have natural inclination towards, or that an incident in their life has caused them to be extremely focused on goals, for example. I think these are qualities that you can learn. And therefore, I think it it can be transferable to other athletes that might not be resilient, but they can adopt that. They can yeah, and, and and adapt to it, and and so I'm going to I'll challenge you on this, uh, not not challenging in a negative way, but I, I'm going to challenge you now to apply it. So you can listen to that, and uh, and it, as a listener, it can be intimidating. And you think, well, shit, I'm not a I'm not a super elite. I, I don't have these qualities, and well, I can think about all of these areas, and perhaps in all five, I'm not. Certainly not at the top level. So what's your advice for listeners? What actionable steps can they take when considering that if they're looking to apply either to their sport or their life? What are sort of some of the, the overall sort of context for it? Well, I think that the, the start point to this outstanding excellence or super elite always has to start somewhere. And, and so what is going well for somebody at this current moment in time? And that's why New Year's resolutions don't work. By trying to set some sort of goal that's out of reach and not sustainable and that is, I'm going to, I'm going to um, go to the gym five times a week, I'm going to cut out biscuits, I'm going to do all these sorts of things, and it's not sustainable. So what's going well for somebody at this moment? And to get, get in touch with that, and then what would be the next level up from it? That would be my my advice and sense because you're building upon fertile ground for people that's already going well for me in my life i can do that i have done that before and so i need to get back in touch with that or i could potentially just extend that ever so slightly and that is that is adopting some of these qualities on a small level and then you can start thinking well well, what other qualities and characteristics would I need to exhibit to extend that further? And, it- and you think it's fair enough, uh, I'll say something that I sort of have an opinion, but it's very rare that seismic change across many things create sustainable performance. I mean, does that make sense? Like this, Is that what you're saying there in, in some ways, that it's like you don't have to change everything at once? diet, sleep habits, training, and, and sort of almost like a, a evangel- evangelism into the, the sort of performance world. I would completely agree. If somebody is thinking, what's the next level up for me? I've got some ambition or I want to improve. Then the best place is to start small and to build upon that and extend that. The, ra- the, the only real evidence that I know about, about the, these seismic changes come with li- big life events. That could be a change of job. It could be loss of a loved one, whatever it might be, that, that suddenly something's got to change. I've got to rebalance my life. Addiction, and addiction might be one as well, of course, which we talked about earlier. Right, potentially, yeah. That, that, that yeah, I've got to get a, a different sense of this. And that potentially is a, is a greater motivator for, to, to be able to adopt a bigger chunk of change. Yeah, that's interesting. So, one more thing on, on the elite athletes as well, modalities. And, you know, when I think about modalities, in, in the world we live in now, there is this influx of 
in every area, whether we're discussing recovery, nutrition, strength, training methodology, that you could dissect everything down to a million different pieces. Mm. And the elite athletes are getting inundated with, as you said earlier, sort of like the magic elixir or the magic pill sort of thing. With the athletes that you've worked with, how have they managed those? And, and you know, in many ways, it's sort of intentional focus. Is that the, the great filter that they develop on the value add part of things as you sort of talk about your strive analogy? Um, not necessarily. I think that again, that's learnt. Um, and so there's a, you tend to see, you, you tend to see, uh, the best athletes sort of giving you a bit of a hard stare when you've come up with a new idea. Is this really worth my effort? Yeah. <laughs> Are you really serious about this? And that's what I mean by the value add. Yep. To, I've got to put some effort into to energy into some new discipline around this um, or adopting um, new habits around this. Um, but equally, if you look at some of the, the, the best athletes in the world, that, that certainly that I've worked with, their routines are quite complex and they're not normal behaviors that they're up at five o'clock in the morning, checking body weight, resting heart rate and hydration status and taking supplements and doing some stretching. And these aren't normal daily behaviors for sure. a lot of us. Um, they are quite uh, routine and, and disciplined in that sense because they have accumulated this evidence that this adds value to my life um, and investing uh, and prehabilitating before the injury happens, all these sorts of good quality habits. Um, so yeah, there, there is a certain a discerning element of it, but it comes back to this sort of innovative training techniques versus doing the basics really well. You've got to have both in equal measure. And, and would you extend that to data as well or data? It's uh, my very <laughs> American of me there, wasn't it? So data. Hey, hey buddy. Um, but you know, data is obviously a critical piece of the performance puzzle at the same time i think it can be prone to sort of paralysis of an athlete's inner animal almost so there's this sort of this tug of value how have you managed that and has it been individual at the athlete level of the use of data particularly during the workout so when you're actually executing the workout uh, well, this could be a long answer, so please stop me if I'm ranting yeah, about this. I'll give you a minute. <laughs> I've no. got I've got particularly strong opinions about how this whole area of data has just got out of hand. And um, don't get me wrong; I mean, the, the the big breakthroughs that I've I've created and worked with athletes and sports have been driven by good quality information mm-hmm. and the performance determinants what actually really maps and correlates with performance and and having a good performance model has been a real breakthrough for for numerous sports so that's all data driven the quality of the data in decision making and as a coach taking sort of trying to find guidance through the open savanna with lots of lots of threats from other coaches saying what's that scientist doing there with with coaching athletes data has has navigated me through that. I know this athlete is going well because I've measured it. Sure. So, so it can be a really, a hugely guiding light, but I, I think it's got out of hand generally. Um, I see a lot of people that are, have a, have a good income with a secure job, at, at professional outfits in sports and business that are measuring a lot of stuff, 
but it not being useful. And so it's measured, um, it's relevant, but it's not actioned. Yep. And that's the difference, uh, is cutting through the noise of data, finding the, the areas that you can make a change with. And to me, that's, that's where data is, is useful. But I see so few people measuring and putting that information forward and providing uh, scrutiny on something they can act on. Yeah, no, it's, I absolutely agree. The, the other part that I, that I see as well is coaches uh, or, or sports scientists treating athletes like bridges. So, you know, building a bridge, it's like it's a, this angle, this degree. And what I mean in, in real life is this session you do, let's choose some arbitrary session. It doesn't six by four minutes. You have to do it at exactly this power or you are a failure. And I've yet to see <laughs> any sports scientist or coach that, that can actually get down to that granularity of, quote, it's shrouded in specificity. And if you track the origin of that, that will have an origin based on a study that got popular. And so for, I, I'll give you an example. Uh, someone will go to the gym and they'll do 10 reps on their biceps, but they'll do 30 or 20 on their abs. Why? Because once upon a time, we used to think that if you do lots of repetitions, that you will reduce fat in that area. And so that's based upon a superstition that's not founded in real, real life, but it's got an origin to that. And so some study somewhere has talked about four-minute repetitions. You know, I, can, I can quote who those people are, yeah. which are the great studies. But they do, that does not mean that it, that's the best session. Um, and so this whole area of high-intensity interval training at the moment is, has ballooned because of Marty Gabala's work that is, has, has shown disproportionate improvements in aerobic capability. Fantastic. But if you strip it right back, what are you trying to create? You're trying to create a metabolic stimulus and a mechanical stimulus. Yep. And hopefully something that, that helps the brain as well and, and mental approach to it. That's what you're trying to create in the muscles. So be free with it. Be free. And, and I've found over the years, within a certain parameters of a certain amount of volume, a certain level of intensity, that if you give a session to an athlete that they've never done before, and they go, well, oh, I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm expected of me. I, I've got questions about this. How, what, do, what should I do? What pace should I do this at? And you're saying, well, I don't know, but you've got to work it out. Then now they're mindful in the session as opposed to just being a robot. And so that's where I believe actually one of the biggest untapped resources in training prescription. And, and I think in a lot of the way we live our life is variety. Yeah, absolutely. The body and mind hates monotony. For sure. It loves variety. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and so if, if monotony is the, one of the causes of overtraining and burnout, then variety can offset that. Yeah, that's a wonderful. Let's, as the last piece of the conversation, let's go into uh, re really on new world. So you, you are no longer with the British Olympic Association. You're, you've started your own company. I'd love to know the, the, the genesis of that and what you're looking to achieve. So we're very much trying to transfer the lessons of, of high performance to a broader community. And that's not just, we're still working with athletes. We, you know, we, we're still committed to, to exploring the, the limits of human performance for, for those people in a, in a wider world, whether that's somebody going for 
the, their first 5K or whether that's aspiring to to a, a world or Olympic medal still. So we're still committed to doing that. But the one of the big lessons that we took from the last couple of decades of work in high performance wasn't just as much about the the fast bikes and the new skin suits and the and the the ways of training. It was the lessons about how we can operate as humans in support of other people. And so what we got fascinated for the last 15 years or so was, was how can we create high-performance behaviors professionally? How does that manifest itself as, as a high-performing team? And applying the same thinking that we would do to a stride frequency or cadence or all these sorts of components of sports performance – how can we get curious about and develop and understand and nurture trust, communication, mindset, leadership? Because after the Beijing Olympics, which was drenched with success, 2008, uh, fourth on the medal table, everyone just said, this is fantastic. We've just done so well. But actually a lot of the feedback on the ground behind the scenes that people wouldn't have known about was actually a lot of a lot of feedback about staff not performing well. Interesting. Really when it mattered, when the pressure was on, did they exhibit high quality behaviors? And the answer was no. And as a leader in that system, I had the, the unenviable position of actually giving this feedback to staff to say, you know, your communication was poor. And, and actually these were harder things to communicate than, than saying to somebody, you just need to put a new process in place. That's really easy. Yep. To tell somebody that their body language just sucked <laughs> was just, it's hard. It's emotional stuff. And, and so actually this, this, the genesis of supporting champions came from that point because I was scratching my head thinking, how do I do this? I'm a physiologist. For God's well, sake. Now you're built, now you're team evolution, not just yeah. team building. So actually my wife at the time was, was studying occupational psychology so my wife, Rachel, was studying this and I said, I know you're busy, but would you read this essay on uh, the, how leaders balance task and people? I was like, oh my God, I've got to read that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Can I? Yeah. And have you got anything else? <laughs> I said, well, yeah, I said, what else have you got? She said, well, I've got this interesting essay on how, uh, how ambulance workers go from clinical case to clinical case. And how they manage and maintain and sustain high performance uh, when it's actually quite traumatic. And I'm like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. And they said, I've got another essay on air traffic control and how they sustain concentration. Because I quite like air traffic controllers to be high performers, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, most people are hopeful of that. <laughs> but it's quite a mundane thing, air traffic yeah. control. But what can we learn from this? And so this started the spark of what can we learn from these these different performance industries that we could transfer back in. And so we systematically started to develop high-performance teams from, from the Beijing Olympics to that home games. And I do genuinely believe it's a, it was a big factor in the success of, the, of London 2012. But equally, after 2012, you know, it, was the, it was the best day in work ever. It was an, an incredible event. Uh, for for our nation and our society, as awkward, humbly Brits, we actually thought, oh, we might be quite good at something. 
but the challenge then was to go go again and no other nation had won more medals after hosting the games and that was the challenge that i faced as a leader of that system and amongst others an amazing team uh, behind the team but all of the characteristics of trying to sustain performance came from we because we, we had a workforce that was highly threatened by doing something that no one had ever done before mm-hmm. and and actually we didn't have a reason to change we were changing whilst we were very successful but the the, the behaviors and the leadership characteristics were about listening to people hearing their 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 fears and gathering their ideas engaging them in the process activating them to give them decision making capabilities on the ground and being really purpose driven what are we trying to do in 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 sport and, and and the conversations tended to go with people of look we're you know what's your job my my job is to, in nutrition do nutrition and I'm, I'm there to help athletes um eat well mm-hmm. to do what to hopefully allow them to get enough energy to train and perform to do what to give them a chance of of standing on the the top of the medal podium to do what and only at that last level did we really get this sort of shared and collective purpose of i think we're there to to help people get medals but ultimately we're there to help bring pride to a group a society that happened to be Britain at the time. Yeah. And that purpose lev- level conversation that, that drove a lot of high performance team behaviors. And so that's our mission now is that we, we can do so much more individually and as teams, if we are intentional about how we, how we work, how we behave and how we adapt and learn over the, over time and bring that high performance thinking to a wider community. It's fantastic. So we have one more thing to do. This is probably the most challenging part of the conversation, Steve. <laughs> you're um, you're getting thrown to the Fort Wall. So you you as a as a Brit, you're going to remember desert island discs, and so we draw from that, and we have our own little version of it. So uh, you know, I go back to my English roots. Most people have not heard of desert island discs that are listening, but I'm going to do a, a, a little riff on the old show, and it's it's very simple and quick reactionary questions. But you are just about to be sent on exile to a desert island your luxury air maze bag luggage bag only has room for a few essentials so uh i want to investigate and what would you bring with you by the way i have to remind it can't be the musical piece cannot be the national anthem and it cannot be the bible so here's the first question Are you ready for this you're a shackled in the corner if you could only bring one piece of music with you what would it be? And, and the most important thing is, why is that? That's just a horribly difficult question to answer. But I, I, will, I will attempt it. Um, so the piece of music is Unfinished Sympathy by Massive Attack. Okay. So the... the Bristol Band. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh, massive you, Attack. You're, you're in it there. <laughs> Um, there's, so that's 1991, the significance of that. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a rousing track that builds and has a great rhythm. Um, so it's a good listen. I don't think I've got bored of it yet. Um, 
it always it never fails to up my pace if I'm listening to it on the um, whilst I'm out for a run. Uh, so that that is always ergogenic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 1991 uh, was a pivotal year for me of just thinking, what am I going to do with my life? And I was just adrift, just thinking, I'm not, I'm not, I, don't, I have no idea. Um, and at 17, 16, 17 years old, I was just thinking, what next? And, and meeting that mentor that I mentioned, Colin Clegg, and that spark. And it has that significance and nostalgia to that point in my life that I don't really recognize myself before it. Um, and was irrevocably changed as a consequence of it. So I would, I'd reminisce to to a bit of massive attack. That would be it. It's brilliant. It's it's the it's the prelude to actually what uh, you know. I had a guess of what it might be. Actually, do you know what I thought it yeah, might be? Uh, bizarrely, I thought that it might be the uh, music of Underworld from the London Olympics. Oh, yeah. The uh, opening ceremony, there's a couple of tracks in there that are rousing, but also I thought that might have some attachment to you because of, uh, of that. You were probably too busy even. <laughs> no, no, there was, uh, there's a couple of tracks like that that, that, um, that, uh, that just have that attachment to that was a bloody good summer or that was yeah, an amazing exactly. moment in time. And so David Bowie's Heroes um, course, has yeah. that because that played as the British team came out. Exactly. And, um, and the BBC have a habit of creating an incredible montages and just before the, the the game started and just before it was broadcasted so I wasn't actually in the village I was I was at home watching this and what 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 played out was this montage with this heart this heart beating in this boom 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 and they they had a coronary artery in the shape of the Thames and I'm there as a physiologist, just completely overdosed of that's a heart, that's a phys- I'm physiology overload, that there's a heart pumping and delivering oxygen through the Thames, and it's the home games that I just was off the scale, ready to to to, to cry. <laughs> All right, well now you move to the next question. You could only bring one book with you. What would that be? Um, so that's uh, a tricky one. That recently. Can I, uh, okay. recently Greg McKeown's essentialism uh, has given me focus real focus and that means saying no to stuff clearing out and decluttering but I would I would probably reread uh, Richard Dawkins Unweaving the Rainbow interesting yeah. um, and there's a relevance to that having been brought up as a as in a religious environment and but actually what it and weaving the rainbow is about celebrating understanding. That understanding that that light putting through a prism turns into a rainbow or or the spectrum of colours has unlocked so much. Um, and so it's based on John Keats that that if that when Newton uh, showed that that light was broken into its prismatic colours, it was like unweaving the rainbow. It destroyed the poetry of it. But understanding can give so much, can give so much, that let's just at least respect that and understand that. It was a pivotal book for me. Fantastic. So you have one other thing. You've got, you've got two books in there and you've also got uh, one piece of music. What would the one other thing be? Can I bring my girls? You can bring your girls. Oh, that's yeah. cool. That's yeah, good. that is. That's you good. can bring your girls. Yeah, my, my, 
my darling wife and my pu- two beautiful uh, daughters. You don't need to explain that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <It's> great. <laughs> so you're going to leave, you're on, the, uh, you're on the shores, you're getting sent off to exile. You've got some chance for some final word, words to the world. What would it be? I'm, I'm relatively comfortable with risk. And so that stood me in good stead, but it's also got me into a lot of trouble over the years <laughs> uh, of trying to strike out and do something remarkable and do something unique. But what comes with that is the challenge of it. And, and I think over the years, I would probably look back and think, you know, I could probably have even taken a bit more risk. Um, and so there's a, there's a quote from a book by John Wills, uh, which is if you, if you, to be nothing, do nothing, say nothing, and you'll never be criticized. Yep. And, and so, yeah, you can have a nice easy cruise through life, um, but, but you, you've got to strike out and try. Um, so that would be my mantra for life. Perfect. Well, I can't thank you enough, and uh, I think we've got to talk for many more hours and uh, I'm, I'm trying to keep it as succinct as we can but I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and I want to wish you the, the best of luck and for me it's been uh, inspiring to talk to someone with your experience and your calibre and it's a ways in education so I really appreciate it thanks Matt take care well guys for me that was interesting fun informative and any time that you get to spend a little bit of an hour or so in conversation with someone that has so much deep and meaningful insight into the world of elite performance, you're sure as heck are going to learn something. And so, Steve, thanks so much for joining. I really appreciate it. I had a wonderful afternoon with you at my house in San Francisco. And for you guys that are listening at home, well, if you're European-based, I can't let it go without mentioning that Steve and his supporting champions, you can find out more about Steve at supportingchampions.co.uk. And I do happen to know that they're doing the Supporting Champions Conference March 19th and 20th, 2019. So if you want to book your place, you can find information on Steve's website. Again, supportingchampions.co.uk. I'd also encourage you, head out, grab the book. It's a really accessible, interesting book that is done, How to Support a Champion, The Art of Applying Science to the Elite Athlete. And of course, it extends into us mere mortals as well so once again steve thanks so much i hope you guys in listening enjoyed it and next week we're back to the jingle we're back to the questions in the meantime if you have any questions remember anything about this podcast or any other episode or in fact anything around performance it's questions that's questions at purplepatchfitness.com until next time matt dixon signing off take care Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate and review the show. The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget... You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers.